Join us for this episode of Nature Centered, a podcast from Wild Birds Unlimited about feeding the birds and enjoying nature right in your own backyard. Here are your hosts, John Schaust and Brian Cunningham. Hey everyone, I am Brian Cunningham. And I am Evan Castor. Hey, welcome to episode 63. Save birds? Plant trees? Wow, what an interesting little title today, right Evan? Right, but I, I mean, why am I here? Because I'm usually the one behind all this. Well, any of our regular listeners are going to notice John did not start off the intros. He has ditched us to do a little birding in Panama. And I don't mean like Panama, Indiana. I mean like as in the country. So Evan is stepping in with us today. So welcome, Evan. For better or worse, I'm here. So yeah, <laughs> I think it's going to be a fun show, though, uh, because uh, even though I'm here, you're not going to have to hear much of me because we have a very cool guest coming in. Is that right? Yes, we do. From the Arbor Day Foundation, we have a special guest today. So we'll introduce him in a little bit and really dive into that whole, can you really save birds by planting trees? I mean, what's up with that? Uh, I know I love trees and the benefits of trees. I kind of have a, I've talked before, I love birds, I love trees. So a couple of my passions there. I know, Evan, you've got some stories there. You know, all I remember is the old jingle from the 90s the Arbor Day used to play all the time. Trees are terrific. And it was like a little bird with a top hat. It's a little cartoon thing. So, yeah, I'm, I'm on board. I like birds. I like saving them. And trees are terrific. Uh, we got some excellent content coming today from our special guest. And hang on, too, because if you've ever wondered, how do I successfully plant a tree in my yard? Uh, we're going to have some expert tips to make sure that doing those things, you're going to have the, the best possible scenario. So stick around for the fun, everyone. Well, Evan, man, great show we've got lined up for everybody today. Uh, we, Wild Birds Unlimited, we've been partnering with the Arbor Day Foundation this year to plant of all things, trees, right? That, that's what they do best, right? That's right. So, you know, helping to support our vision and our mission, helping to save the songbirds. So we partnered up with Arbor Day Foundation. We're planting trees in different places across the U.S. and Canada, all because we want to help the birds. And we've chosen some sites, been planting trees there. I should say they're doing all the work. I've would love to go and help out. Maybe one day we'll be able to jump in and do that, but really, really cool because where we're planting trees, each one of these sites has at least 35 different species of birds that are passing through on a migration time or they nest there for summer or they spend some time in winter, but at least 35 of those bird species spend some time in those spots, but they also are spending some time probably in anyone's yard listening to this across the U.S. and Canada. So backyard birds do take advantage of those sites, and that's really, really cool to know. Man, birds are on the move, and what we're doing with planting these trees actually can help your backyard birds. So really, really cool. Birds like grosbeaks, orioles, hummingbirds, sparrows, all sorts of others, nuthatches. Uh, the list is on and on. What but, I think is cool is you guys have opened my eyes to you're not just putting a tree up so they have a place to land. There's so many things right. that trees are helping to benefit nature and birds. Yeah. Well, let's dig in a little bit more about what those benefits look like and and all the fun there. So we're, welcome. 
We want to welcome Pete Smith from the Arbor Day Foundation. Welcome, Pete. Yeah, thanks for having me today. We are excited to have you. So, Pete, uh, your title, you are the Program Manager for Urban Forestry for the Arbor Day Foundation. And I love that you have a background in education as a forester. That is also my education as a forester. Uh, I took a little different route into that forest recreation, basically to be a naturalist. And you took that bent into urban forestry, right? That's right. So I'm a, a, a graduate of Penn State University, forest science, where I studied really the um, the management of natural forests, mostly in the Northeast, but I spent most of my career actually in Texas and uh, working with private landowners to achieve their goals. Um, a lot of pine timber management, but mm -hmm. uh, soon found that, you know, having grown up in the city of Philadelphia, I, I really liked urban community forestry and trying to help small towns, big cities develop programs to improve the forest cover there and uh, increase diversity and be successful at growing some shade for residents there. Oh, yeah. If I may, isn't urban forestry sounds like an oxymoron, right? <laughs> we get that a lot, you know, and, and it's been spoofed and made fun of for a long time. But, you know, if that's what gets people to think about this, what I used to call the invisible forest, it's invisible. Ooh. It's in our cities and no one believes they live in a forest. And yet we have urban foresters managing those trees day in, day out, planting, removal, tree care of all kinds on our streets and in our parks, public buildings. That is That's a true. forest. And I'll tell you, things are, things are, if you live in the South, if you lived in Texas, like I did, it's hot and getting hotter. And the idea that we build urban spaces without shade seems rather foolhardy. Uh, it's tough, uh, tough for humans even to live in that environment in, in the summer. And, you know, we see records being broken every year for heat and drought and a range of things. Trees soften that landscape a great deal. Just takes some mm -hmm. care and some investment to try to make sure that they're living long and healthy lives. Yeah, I love that you're talking about that and that urban forestry. Uh, it, one of those benefits that I have is uh, I've talked on our show in the past that uh, my family, we live in suburbia and we have trees. We specifically have maple trees and we make maple syrup. And so you could designate we're urban sugar makers and I'm actually going to do a, a field day here uh, to for the public in the, the near future that is all about urban sugar making and talking about how you can manage your trees to help benefit birds as well. So, yeah, urban forestry. Yeah, you know. Whether you know about it or whether you're like, what? What is that? What a joke, right? Now it's loads of benefits for everybody. It's real, and it's real where we live. Mm -hmm. This is where we live, work, and yeah. play. And it's not way out in the wilderness, right? It's right at home. It's, there's a, a gentleman who works at the University of British Columbia as well as in, in Europe, and he's got a new sort of philosophy about urban trees and their importance. He calls it the 330-300 principle. And that is everyone 
should be able to see three trees from where they live. They ought to live in a neighborhood that has 30% minimum tree canopy, and they need to have a public park within 300 meters of where they live. Wow. That, These cool. are, and this is based on human health research. Those parameters drive human health outcomes, whether it's cardiovascular, mental health, um, all, all sorts of benefits are derived from having those metrics. You're saying you can literally measure the health of people by their proximity to trees. It's absolutely the case. We're working right now with a company called NatureQuant, and they have correlated human health data with all manner of greenness and outdoor recreation opportunities. And the distances from where you are at any moment in time can be calculated and they produce a nature score. We're actually gonna be using that at the Arbor Day Foundation to focus our new tree plantings over the next five years in urban areas, because we wanna plant trees where they're needed the most. We wanna find those places that people can benefit the most from trees and add trees there. And it's, it's harder work to do that because not everyone really knows that they want trees. But once they experience, I think, the, the benefits, there's a lot more understanding and a lot more investment and a lot more acceptance of trees. It's kind of like exercise. I don't, I don't want to exercise until I am exercising. And they go, ah, I'm actually right. feeling better about this. Yeah, this is, this is pretty good. And the health outcomes are pretty similar. That's wild to me. That's pretty fantastic. And, you know, you obviously have a love for trees and what you do. And it, it's coming through and I'm loving hearing these things. And I'm just thinking, man, maybe we can keep keep these partnerships going and help. How, do, how does Wild Birds Unlimited jump in and, and help Arbor Day Foundation and go side by side with some of these urban scenarios? That could be really, really fun. Uh, but I love hearing, too, the nature side, how trees are helping people. Uh, I think you're absolutely correct that most of the time people look past trees. They, it just it's. They don't think about it, but yet the relationship we've had with trees historically has been really integral. I know, Evan, you were sharing with me a story about, man, trees and how important they are. You think about a desert. Yeah. So I was telling uh, Brian, Pete, that I actually lived out in LA for a while. And before that, I lived out in the Mojave and I, I hadn't really thought about trees that much because you live here in Indiana where it's deciduous forest everywhere and you, you love them and they're beautiful. But then you're out in the Mojave and you're looking around and there's nothing as far as the eye can see, right? It's just flat desert out there, uh, which has its own beauty for sure. I don't want to down talk anybody who's, who's out west in the desert. It's gorgeous. However, you start to realize there is kind of this symbiotic relationship because everywhere there's a town, it was real obvious because there'd just be flat horizon forever and then a little cluster of trees somewhere and you realize we don't go anywhere without these guys. You can take us into the desert. We're bringing trees with us. It's, a, it's actually a really good point. In fact, uh, we've done a little bit of analysis of that phenomenon. Wherever there's human really? settlement, there are trees. And so since I was in Texas and we were uh, doing urban and community forestry, there's a real different 
uh, landscape, there's seven different eco regions just in the state of Texas. So you get out into West Texas and there's not a lot of tree cover naturally, but everywhere there's a town, there's trees. And my question is, how much? What What's the natural rate of mm -hmm. urban tree canopy wherever people settle? And the answer is 11 percent. 11 percent. Wow. In other words, without without much uh, activity by government or other investments, people will plant trees at least to 11 percent just about everywhere there is. And then what are we doing with some of our invasive species that take over places that we didn't really anticipate at all and uh, prevent others from getting, uh, escaping and doing harm to our natural landscapes? As you point out, deserts, grasslands, and others are important landscapes for birds, for mm -hmm. people, for everything. Trees can be as big a problem in some of those as they are a solution. So uh, you know, some of our challenges in wildfire in particular are about uh, around the North American continent. The whole continent is about too many trees in the wrong place. Yeah, that's an interesting point to, to point out. We have our native trees, but then we have these introduced trees that didn't evolve in this, this natural landscape. And uh, I think it's important to speak a little bit to how does that affect birds? How does that affect wildlife in North America when you have natives versus others? Because everyone likes to plant that nice ornamental tree every now and then, right? That's right. And, and so first of all, we want to do no harm. So we never want to introduce a tree that does readily escape. And most people should be able to find lists of invasive plants where they live. And honestly, each ecoregion, actually, that some of the same species will react differently. So um, what is non-invasive in California, suddenly you move it east into East Texas and we see it escaping and becoming naturalized in an environment that's like a Chinese pistache. And uh, that so it's still an excellent landscape tree in part of the country. Mm -hmm. So things are very local when it comes to uh, escapism and naturalization. And uh, very few have gone naturalized across the entire continent. But it's something to be careful of. We, we need to be careful. But we're also trying to find more diversity of plants. And what we've seen, our experience in the 20th and 21st century, mm -hmm. is that insects, pests coming from other places, now are affecting, showing up on our continent and dramatically impacting a native tree. So at ash trees, all the species of ash mm -hmm. in the Fraxinus genus are now affected by emerald ash borer moving its way. It started in the Detroit area in the early 2000s and has swept across uh, all of virtually all of the east and now into the Midwest and eventually will cover the continent. I was just in Des Moines last week in Iowa and um, that entire western Iowa was devastated. Virtually every dead tree and dying tree in the landscape, as far as the eye can see, is an ash tree. So probably not a coincidence. It's devastating. And that 
it's going to have impact on our native bird species that are using those. There are winners and losers in all of these. If you're a woodpecker, right. this is a good time to be a woodpecker in the Midwest because you've got a lot of dead and dying trees with insect larvae right under the bark and um, red-headed woodpecker and red-bellied. And a, a lot of these woodpeckers are going to do well for several years. Yes, but then that massive food source whoop, disappears gone. in that area. It's gone. And now you have to get back to the the natural cyclical cycles, the native plants with the native insects and yeah, and so we talk get... about we talk about climate. We talk about native your mm -hmm. your native uh, environment, right? And I think everyone is seeing it change a little bit. Things mm -hmm. are just a little more extreme all the time. Extremes used to be extreme. Now extremes are regular. What, what is that even? It's like what, what, <laughs> can we can they be extremes anymore? Right? <laughs> We've had three thousand year floods. You know, you have Texas right now experiencing the worst drought in a decade and the worst flooding in uh, 50, 50 years in some places. Mm -hmm. Floods and drought at the same time. Uh, that's just an amazing thing. Uh, California is in a lot of the same boat, so yes. we do see those things and. Um, Wildlife species respond just like humans do. We're, we're going to figure out a way to get through. It's going to impact us. Mm -hmm. And some of us are going to do really well, and some are not going to do as well. Uh, birds are lucky they can they can fly and find try to find habitat that's suitable to them. You know, one of the phenomenons that we've seen sort of in the southern part of near the Gulf of Mexico is some of our hummingbird species that don't migrate across the Gulf of Mexico any longer. They're staying at feeders through the winter. And that's all well and good as long as people are monitoring those feeders, keeping them clean and feeding. But some of those flowers that come out in February in the deep south are jasmine and some of our other vine species are immediately a source of food for that bird that's now a resident. And it's going to keep them going before they fly north and, and, and go through that life cycle again with nests up north. Yeah, we're seeing that that's kind of scenario. We're also seeing like with the Anna's hummingbird along the West Coast and how the Anna's hummingbird now is moving further north more year round. Uh, just phenomenal. And having having a variety of plants that are bringing nectars and flowering at different times of the year or having those berries or those fruits, some that will show up in the fall, some that will last all the way through the winter. So by late winter, early spring, they're ready to go and the birds are, are eating on them. So yes, you can be seasonally savvy with your tree plantings and your native plantings. And if you're not putting out a little grape jelly in, in May and <laughs> June for the our, our Orioles, you're missing one of the brightest spectacles of spring. Oh, the tanagers and the Orioles and catbirds and yes, lots of birds. So much fun. I haven't gotten mine. I just live vicariously through John and Brian that way still. And, you know, living vicariously is really a, a good thing. And uh, so there are, there are going to be some Facebook groups that people can join about viewing birds in your state. So I belong to Birds of Nebraska, and it's just a photography site for people that are out birding all the time. And it's wonderful. 
you get finally a good up, good close up view. I'm doing it with my binoculars, and I'm a little shaky, and I can't. I, you know, did I? Was that an eye ring? Is that an eye ring? Is that a Swainson's thrush? Dang it! Uh, you know, and every spring my yard gets Swainson's thrushes, and I love that moment in the spring when you know migration is starting. And um, but it's a little hard. Over the pictures are great, so it is important to build a community of people that are also thinking about these things reminding each other about the ethics of bird watching and feeding and being clean and and that those are important things for this this hobby that we call bird watching so bringing up droughts and fires uh, and you bring up some some places that have been severely hit Let's talk a little bit about how do trees help in those kinds of situations? What can someone do at home? There are, there are lots of things that homeowners can really do in planting trees and other uh, plants, not only to benefit birds, but to benefit the big cycles that sometimes hit are towns, villages, and cities. You guys know what the biggest crop in America is, right? Oh, yes. Nope. Uh, yeah. Grass. It's lawns. Our lawns. It's lawns. It is It is mowed lawn is the biggest crop in America, bigger than corn, sense. bigger than soybeans, bigger than all those things that we're doing. And really, we should start looking at how to uh, maximize diversity of our own landscape by maybe replacing some of that with areas of trees and other plants that are deep rooted and allow water to infiltrate soil. We can look at rain gardens and other landscapes and styles of landscaping that really are going to benefit not only species, but are going to really slow water down. And that's going to be a precious resource. Doesn't matter if you're in the West or the East. The, the Midwest is a real uh, argument for diversity because this part of the world was dominated in our cities by American elms. And in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, Dutch elm disease wiped all of them out. Mm -hmm. And they so they were replaced in large quantities with three different genera, at least here in Lincoln, Nebraska, oaks, honey locust, and ash. So a little mm -hmm. bit of diversity, but now we have 17% of our urban forest is ash, and all that's coming out here in Lincoln. Mm -hmm. so those are those are big challenges. Um, so, you know, if I, if, as I, as I coach city foresters, as they ask to be coached, <laughs> my advice is, how, what can you afford to lose? How much money do you have to remove part of your urban forest tomorrow? Mm -hmm. How much? Okay, that's the percentage of trees you should have in any one genus. There you go. That's how to measure what you can do. It's what you can afford. And most cities are having to invest additional tax dollars just to take care of the dead, the dead mm -hmm. and the dying, the risky trees. Adding trees always comes later. It's like parsley on the plate. I don't, I don't 
subscribe to that. Um, we we really think that uh, urban forestry is about managing the population over the long term. If you want to talk arboriculture, let's talk about the individual tree and what's wrong with that tree, how to solve that tree, how to deal with tree risk, how to evaluate that tree. That's what arboriculture and arborists do, is that looking at that. But big picture stuff is about forestry. What's the population? How do you measure it? How do you look at it long term? And how do you write a plan that gets you there? I think that's wonderful to be thinking about and having that presentation to bring to the forefront. Trees, trees in our yards, trees in our, our cities, our towns. Um, and I know we'll put in to our show notes links about how do you find native plants, native trees. Uh, we have different websites you can go to to find those to help you locally. So you can find out what, what grows in your area, what thrives there. So we'll definitely drop that in there. Yeah, and I, I really think this concept of regional, mm-hmm. regional natives is a good concept. Don't be afraid to look outside of your state to a neighboring state because our ecoregions don't follow state boundaries either. Nope. And Just like the birds. Find, <laughs> and, and we can find very well-adapted, well-behaved species and to add to our diversity and, and try something that, and if you've got a local nursery that's producing that local, you know, give that one a whirl. Um, and, and if you, you know, because we want people to be successful when they choose a tree and plant it. And I'll tell you, the success sometimes is about the plant you bought, mm-hmm. that individual plant, whatever species it is. Was it grown well for you to take it, put it in the ground and be successful? And so when you're picking out a tree, you know, I really, if it's going to be a container grown tree, I really encourage people to pull it out of the pot, take a look at the root system. What you're really buying in a potted tree like that is the root system. The above ground portion, that's gravy. It's that it's the roots that are going to get that tree to live, thrive in whatever environment you're planted in. And if it's pot bound, if it's got a lot of circling roots, really thick roots that are girdling the trunk, if it doesn't have a good root system, if you can't find the first roots because it's buried in mulch, maybe that's a tree to avoid. This is why all my plants die. I didn't I didn't check their roots. It's not that I forgot about them and planted them wrong. It's that they just didn't have that. I didn't check the roots. That's the problem. Yeah. Well, and I love you. Every once in a while, we'll say, all right, scientific word here. You know, that biology word, girdling. I always think girdling. I get this image in my mind of those old black and white photos where someone is putting on a girdle and they have someone else helping them and they get a foot on their back and they're pulling on the, the tightening strings and that poor person's going, I can't breathe. And that is basically what you're doing to the tree. <laughs> and we, we do it all the time when we stake trees. Stakes and wires that are left too long on a tree, that's going to also girdle. It's going to girdle it higher up on the trunk, but that's going to girdle that tree. Yeah, because you got a, a so, wire that's wrapped around that's the trunk. That's right. And that, that's the last thing. In fact, I would say don't stake your tree. Don't stake your tree. If it falls over, put it back up. <laughs> it's as simple as that. <laughs> you know, Trees, while they're alive, attract native insects. They are places to raise a family, you know, nests in there and the branches. But then when they're dead, too, 
and or you have dead branches, those are beneficial to the birds because it provides them another scenario. Because well, they're going to be able to raise a family, put a home in. That's where woodpeckers thrive. When you start having a dead portion on a tree and they can work on that portion, uh, they're usually not going to get up into a live tree. And if they do, they're not killing your trees. They're not the reason a tree is, is struggling. There's another reason, and the birds are just taking advantage now. Well, Brian, this is why we don't have a P.O. box because John and Brian every week say, yeah, leave your leaves on the yard, leave your dead trees, make a stick pile. Every HOA in America will be sending us mail if we have a P.O. box. So, <laughs> you know, but it's key, the, right? It's, it's key to healthy ecosystems and those native plants, any of the plants in your yard and your trees, they need that healthy soil, healthy organic matter in there. Yeah, and this comes up a lot in the arborist community about safety. We, we have to have safe trees near our homes, where we live, along our sidewalks. But if we remove every dead stick every year, there, some of our birds are, are not going to be able to have homes in those trees. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of dead material, a dead branch that is managed for safety so it doesn't fall on your head, Sometimes it's a good thing in our yards, especially in our private landscapes, because we've got a lot of cavity nesting birds that really need that uh, dead material. If, if, yeah. if cities have parks and can have dead standing trees and simply keep people at a distance from them, then our, our birds can really use those. So, you know, a moderation in all things. We've made a really great case about how trees help people and help our environment, even financially can can help us or our cities. Um, yeah, and we just, our last episode, we talked about the benefit of trees when it comes to food and birds caching. But I mean, more specifically, what are some of those different trees that are going to help birds that we could do in our own yards? That's a good one because um, I, I think when we're looking at creating habitat, you know, we've got to look at not only that mix of species, but the mix of sizes too. And we want our, our, our landscape to complement our plants, to complement each other. And each of them at different seasons is going to do different things for birds and different birds, perhaps. So, you know, the the most important layer is that canopy layer and we we probably ought to be looking at if you've got a wide open landscape you know you got a new house in a cornfield you've got to start looking at what's that shade going to be like in 30 years and what's that biggest long-lived tree that's going to do well in my region and it depends on where you live you know that some of them could be conifers if you're out in in colorado and you might be looking at a diversity of pine and spruce trees and those are going to produce cones eventually and a lot of our seed uh uh eating birds are going to really love those crossbills and finches and a whole range of sparrows and uh 
uh, our migrating warblers are going to really come in there in the spring and in the fall looking for insects among those mm -hmm. those narrow leaves. That's a key. They're going to be nesting in there. The conifers are, always, are providing year-round cover for some of our nesting birds deep inside that, whether it's a, a, a blue spruce or whatever, pines, uh, provides some different texture and, and view than, than the tight little spruces. And then we get into some of our other deciduous trees, and in most of the continent, we're looking at oaks as being a dominant, a dominant group of trees. You should look at a diversity of oaks. You should always look for having an oak on your property. They they get big, they live long, they they do well. They've got a variety of insects. Three hundred and fifty or more insects are going to be using that tree to live in part of their own life cycle. And birds are going to come in there. I mean. Um, my my friends in Galveston, Texas, after Hurricane Ike, lost a lot of their oak trees. In some neighborhoods, 90% of the tree canopy or more oh. was killed. Oh wow! And we had to restore that. This is a this is a city that has Featherfest as as part of their identity uh, during the spring migration. As you know, we get fallouts right in the city of of warblers and other passerine birds. So that that was critical to try to recreate some of that habitat and rebuild that for our, our bird species. So uh, I, I think there's always room for flowering fruiting in our landscapes. Uh, yes. And even some that are going to produce that winter fruit, the fruit that might not be as palatable now, but lasts all the way to spring. I don't know if anyone's ever seen cedar wax wings in March, but mm -hmm. if they're coming through, one of the things they're hitting is crab apples, where the crabs haven't haven't dropped those crab apples, but they've sat on there and, and fermented a little bit. And the wax mm -hmm. wings come in and it's just like hitting the pub. You know, they're they're having a big time and huge flocks of them. So uh, pardon them if they get a little intoxicated with <laughs> with some of these some of these fruits, but they, it has they been are known key. to happen. We're big, we're big fans of fermentation on this show, so yeah. <laughs> it's just a key resource at a key time of year when birds are moving through and there isn't much else. So we want to look at all of those, and I really encourage people to do their homework and look at these plant lists and really try to figure out spring and fall and winter, uh, as well as the summer nesting season where what you're really often providing is the space. That's the good space for nests for a lot of those resident birds that are nesting there. Well, Pete, it has been wonderful having you with us today. We really appreciate having you here talking about trees, talking about birds, talking about people and ecoregions, in fact, and all the benefits that trees provide. So on behalf of all of us at Wild Birds Unlimited, we thank you for joining in and listening to Save Birds, Plant Trees. And please rate and review us and stay tuned for next time when we actually talk about the changing cast of characters. So John will be returning with us. And in the meantime, I hope that everyone continue to let nature be your guide. Please take care, be safe, and keep those feeders clean. Adios, friends. To subscribe to the podcast... For show notes or to find the Wild Birds Unlimited store near you, visit wbu.com slash podcast. 
and we really appreciate you telling your friends about Nature Centered. But until next time, we hope you find a moment every day to relax and enjoy the birds.